If you ever thought it'd be cool to be paid to ride a motorcycle, that's right, get a paycheck for riding your bike. You're going to love this one. We also have Brett Tax doing our Rider Skills segment, and he's got some tips for us to get our bikes up and over those obstacles with the finesse and skill that we need for our adventure bikes. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Alan Carl. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Said Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lois Price. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're exploring the world visit them at cyclepump.com that's cyclepump.com Imagine a job where you get paid to ride a motorcycle. You're going to spend three months riding through Europe. You're going to ride the mountain passes. You're going to enjoy beautiful scenery. You're going to meet people, stay in hotels, and all expense paid. You get a paycheck at the end of it. And on top of that, they let you keep the bike. Well, it's a real job. And over 10,000 people applied for it. Out of that 10,000, Louis Castilla, a rider from Mexico City in Mexico, must have had something that stood out from the rest because he got the job. He rode the trip, he kept the bike, and now it's changed his life. Uh, my name is Luis Castilla. I'm from Mexico City, and uh, I'm a producer, adventurer, and you know, seeker of uh, anything that will make my heart pump. And my grandma uh, was French, and you know, she passed on the nationality to my mother and then to me. Um, so I'm, I have both nationalities. But, uh, yeah, I was born in Mexico City, so I identify more with Mexico. But, of course, I have a French family, and I lived in the United States for a long time, and I went to school in Canada. So I have a kind of multicultural background. Now, you mentioned you're a producer. What, what do you produce? Uh, I used to do, um, you know, I used to do a bunch of ads. I worked on the uh, president of Mexico's uh, radio show on Saturdays a long time ago, uh, I produced uh, TV shows, uh, a bunch of materials for, you know, science uh, content, Earth and Sky in Austin, Texas. Um, so I've been producing, yeah, radio and television for a long time. Well, and of course, that's not why we have you on today. We have you on today because you're also an adventure rider, which is probably the, the, the better part of your life, wouldn't you say? 
of course, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, motorcycling changed my life. So I'm, uh, I talk about it all the time to with anyone that wants to listen, you know. <laughs> well, you've got the ear here. So let's start with how you got into motorcycling. Well, um, it's, it's a bittersweet story. My, you know, my family, my mother used to ride uh, motorcycles when she was young. And, but then my parents kind of wouldn't let me get on a bike. So I just, you know, I, I like bicycles a lot. And that's as far as I got. But then tragically, uh, they passed away. And after they were gone, um, you know, I kind of restructured uh, my head around going to do something that I really like, kind of, you know, like as a, as a therapy almost, you know, um, to, to forget or to process what had happened. And motorcycling was the perfect thing. You know, like it, it sort of became a, a meditation for me to kind of get all the emotions out as to like what I want to do and um, just get over uh, their tragic loss. What did you start out with for a bike? I, I, I um, started out with an uh, F800 GS, so a pretty big bike for my first bike. <laughs> um, and then I started doing long trips in Mexico. I did a little uh, two-day two trip to Austin, Texas from Mexico City. And there's really good roads around Mexico City. You'd, you'd be surprised about, like, it's very technical stuff. So I very quickly like, went out with some groups and very quickly you know, learned to do kind of very tough tours uh, around the city, like five or six hour rides. Um, and then I jumped to a 1200 GS. When I felt ready, I took a bunch of courses with good teachers. Um, this French guy called Francois Dereau. He was an uh, enduro champion, I think, uh, a long time back. So I, I got more into uh, doing tougher, tougher things and then decided to do a long tour to the Arctic Circle. And that's when the real adventure began. The Arctic Circle. So how long were you riding when you decided to do that? I was riding for 2008, like six years, you know, around five, six years before we decided to do that. Um, yeah, sorry. So uh, what was the, the trip to the Arctic Circle like? Uh, it was incredible. Um, you know, Mexico is, it's, a per it's so beautiful to ride in, but we were kind of worried about, you know, going through the northern part of Mexico because at night it could get rough. So getting to the border was intense. You know, there's, uh, the situation with the cartels is not so peachy. Um, but then the, the United States and Canada was perfect. We had all different kinds of terrain. You know, we went through uh, oceans, forests. We kind of the idea was to camp most of the way. So we camped uh, pretty much from Tucson on all the way up. Um, stayed at a couple of friends' places. We went to um, what's it called? I'm sorry. Um, oh God. Uh, the Death Valley National Park. We went to Yosemite. We uh, stayed at the Glacier National Park as well. Um, stayed with some friends in Victoria. So for me, it was kind of opening it up to, to I don't know, I've, I've never been exposed like that for such a long time to people and experiences. You know, like when you're on a bike, people tend to speak to you. Like they, they, they want to know what you're doing. Um, so meeting all these characters along the way, and just letting things happen uh, became also a very important part of the whole 
of the whole adventure. It wasn't just about the bike. It was about everything that happens when you get off the bike as well. You've uh, been to the States before, and you said Canada as well. You, you schooled some in the United States. So it wasn't all that unfamiliar to you as, as far as coming to the States and Canada for that trip, though, was it? Uh, n- not unfamiliar. Um, yeah, when I was a, a kid, I went to school in, in Victoria, B.C., and I stayed with some friends there. But after Victoria, uh, I'm from there to, to Inuvik. It was just completely new territory. Um, but I would say it's a, it's, I, I think it's not as tough as I think it would be. Maybe we had good luck as well. Uh, some people tell me that doing South America might be more adventurous. You know, um, you, ha- you have to go through different borders. You really don't know what the political situation is at any given moment. Like Canada is just this big country and um, nothing out of the ordinary happens. You know, maybe weather or animals, but that's about it. Um, I think I like that, and it sounds very boring, but it's, but it's quite nice at the same time. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the, certainly the Dempster Highway was was a really uh, tough thing to do. We had a lot of uh, a lot of rain, uh, bad weather came in. Some people had accidents, uh, so the, the road was closed for motorcycles, and we waited. We camped at Dawson City for two or three days waiting for things to clear up. When we finally got up, still it was very difficult conditions. We were going, you know, maybe 10, 15 miles an hour and the bikes were just traveling everywhere. It's it's, it's pretty tough. Um, And then we had encounters with bears. Uh, We had to kind of, you know, throw rocks at bears because they were wanting to come into the camp. And we finally had to get a hotel. <laughs> you know, that, that thing was, I was hiding behind my bike, you know, so just when this bear came, I was just, well, maybe I'll just run around the bike and when he chases me, <laughs> you know, hopefully he won't. Um, so from, from a guy from such a big city, from Mexico City's massive metropolis, being face to face with a bear uh, and the fact that that got, was enabled by a bike was really cool. In retrospect, not at the moment. <laughs> the disappointing thing will be when you find out those bears are actually trained by the hotel to get people out of their campsites and into the hotel. That's what people tell me. Like they, <laughs> they, uh, they have an arrangement, right? Yeah. Salmon. <laughs> salmon. Bring, bring in the campers and you get salmon from the hotel. Yeah, yeah. He was a mafia. He was a mobster, that mm-hmm. bear. What, what, uh, was it, what was the 1200 like? I mean, if you're a fairly new rider, and certainly to adventure riding, I would think, at that point. And, and to your 1200, what was that like to handle on, the, on that trip? Um, you know, I, I was a little bit, uh, I think I did a mistake because I didn't change tires in, uh, uh, in Dawson. So I went with some you know, street tires into the Dempster Highway. And mm-hmm. that was very challenging. Um, like I said, like the bike was going everywhere on the road. So it's a fairly heavy bike for, for what we were trying to do, I think. I would rather have done it on a 650 maybe. Um, but if I had had better tires, I think it's a really, really capable bike. Uh, it's heavy enough that it like, digs down deep into the mud. Um, it's very comfy. The long-range tank helped me a lot. My buddy had to have some gas canisters with them and we were worried that we wouldn't make it to Eagle Plains. But, um, uh, you know, it was a 20,000 kilometer trip 
Uh, we did it in 34 days, and I only lost one screw along the way when I fell on the Dempster. Um, so I, I would say it's a very impressive motorcycle, for sure. Do you think your F800 would have been better for that, that trip? I think so, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, definitely. You know, the, um, it's more lightweight. Uh, you don't have maybe as much power, uh, but you don't necessarily need it. And uh, when you're going at, at the most 80 kilometers, 100 kilometers, that just on the dirt road, you don't need, I, I don't think you need the 1200 engine. Uh, and you certainly, uh, the weight kind of makes it more difficult. So my friend was having more fun. He was on an 800 and yeah, he was, he was definitely <laughs> smiling more than I was. Yeah. What, what was he riding on for tires? Same thing, was, street um, tires? He had Sky, uh, Heidenau Scouts, mm. um, which he, he was saying they were kind of hard, but once we got to the dirt, he was, he was ripping it. You know, he, he was having fun. Hmm. Yeah, um, they have a reputation for being a, a, a real long life tire, but um, I, I've never tried to set myself. I, I'd like to try them. I always wondered what they would be like in the in the mud. I think I, I pictured that's where they would sort of fail. At least I, I'm comparing to a TKC80, um, you know, the Continental tire, the knobby. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that we say TKC40 in Spanish, so it's TCK. Uh, the Continentals are yeah most likely way better. Um, and then, then I got a, a set of Carew 3s uh, from Metzeller, which are surprisingly like, over, like all around good. You know, they have good grip in all conditions. So I, I haven't changed the Carew 3 since then. Oh, wow. That's another tire that I've wondered about. So you, you're getting a lot of miles on them? Uh, you know, um, I don't know miles, but kilometers. I've gotten like um, five or 6,000 kilometers on them. And they're, uh, the rear tire is about done probably get another extra thousand or two thousand kilometers on it so it's a fairly short life but they're very fun you know um, they're excellent in, in dirt but and they're really really good on the road even on slippery conditions they they have a really good grip they're comfy they're a little bit noisy that's that's a trade-off but you got naughty tires right? uh, I don't think I'm gonna switch from Carus because the Heidenaus were very slippery uh, on the pavement I think is that right? Well, I didn't expect to hear that. I expected them to be better on the pavement. No, I know they're a harder a, compound. Yeah, they're very hard. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess the best thing about the Heidenhaus is their long, long life. They, they just laugh. But then uh, my friend actually had a problem on the way back on uh, just getting from, I think he was getting into Texas uh, from Colorado, and the, the, tire, the front tire exploded. So uh, and supposedly it's a very rare thing. They just like fell apart, disintegrated. Uh, so that was that was a thing that was really unexpected for us. You know? Did he manage to get it stopped? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he's a good rider, and nothing happened. But Did, uh, and didn't destroy the rim because the F eight hundred is you know has a bit of a soft front rim. No, no, no. It was like he was he was going fairly uh, at a slow speed at the moment, and the, the bike was perfectly fine. But we had to wait, well, he had to wait for like three or four days to get a replacement because he was in a small town and everything was closed. It was the weekend. Um, but yeah, I, at least from my experience with him, I would kind of not consider Heidenhaus, although everybody speaks highly of them. So I, I don't know. 
interesting that you come from Mexico. So your perspective is from Mexico coming up to the United States and Canada and exploring here. And of course, you're dealing with the bears, whereas everyone heading down to Mexico talks about dealing with the cartel, which you mentioned having to deal with with crossing the border. Yeah, the cartels. Uh, a teacher of mine uh, lives in Mazatlan. And he was telling us, you know, we went to, we, we saw him on the way. And he's like, guys, just make sure you don't talk to people at gas stations. Don't, don't eyeball anybody. Um, you know, everybody's got, we, we, they call them, uh, well, they call them, I guess, in English, scouts or, you know, lookouts. Uh, so pretty much what he said is people are always kind of surveying who's coming through the roads and if you're just this biker, they probably won't mess with you, but they know you're coming through. So it's not a comfortable situation to be in, you know, um, just knowing that at any moment, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it in, in and not swear, but shit could happen at any moment. You know? um, I, I, I don't know how, to, how else to describe it, but it's, it's not fun uh, when you're having to deal with things like that, you know. When you say not uh, to eyeball anyone or not look at anyone, you just sort of keep your head down and, and, you know, do what you're doing, fill up and get back on the road? Is that thing not look around too much? Yeah, like, um, you know, he just, he told me a situation like you're just filling up your your tank and some truck with guys pulls up next to you and fills up their truck. Don't eyeball any of them. You know, you kind of, yeah, keep your head down. Don't, Don't look interested. Don't look interested at all because just that interest, you know, there's like they will immediately say, what are you looking at? Like, do you have a problem? Uh, can I, you know, and you don't want to get into any conversation that could lead to anything else because they truly in some parts of Mexico, they, they truly are kind of the law. You know, it's like a, it's just like a state within a state almost. As a, as a motorcyclist, I think you want to focus on the difficulty of the terrain or how technical the roads are or, you know, uh, watching out for uh, oil or just, you know, concentrating on what you're doing with the riding. So when you have to kind of take into account that you might be a target uh, because you're riding a nice bike through a shady part of, of a state or a city, uh, it just, it's a different perspective that, once we got through the border in the States, it became very relaxing, you know? You, you wouldn't want to camp in the middle of nowhere uh, off the road in Mexico. And as soon as we got through the border, we we're like, yeah, let's, we can sleep anywhere. Like, people were telling us, well, when you go to Vegas, uh, make sure to, this and that, you know, like, be careful because some parts of Vegas are rough. And we're like, man, I w- <laughs> this is... Uh, this we're is from Mexico. Like- Yes, like, what's going to happen? What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, for an outsider then, would you say that it's safe for a rider from the uh, United States or Canada or the UK to come and ride in Mexico City? I would, I would say it's safe as long as, uh, you know, people uh, apply common sense. You know, like, um, I, if I was from the UK or the US or Canada, I would try to get in touch with local riders uh, who can kind of show me around uh, the places... That I, that I wouldn't have any problems riding in, you know, uh, try to ride with other people. And if that's not possible, then I would try to keep to the most touristy side of things, uh, which is a shame because Mexico is beautiful and it has 
so many things to offer. But um, if you ride at night or if you just go into a part of, of the country that you're probably not supposed to go, but as an outsider, you don't know, you might get in trouble. You know, it's, uh, you have to know where you're going. I guess it applies to other cities. You know, maybe if you're from New York, you wouldn't go to some part of, uh, of the city that might be uh, shady at the moment. Um, so it's very fun to ride in Mexico, but I would, I would really try to get as much information as possible before just venturing and thinking nothing's going to happen because it can happen. I mean, most likely it won't, but uh, it, it, it has happened already with, with uh, I don't know if it was an American biker in Michoacan that, you know, he, he got killed um, for being in the wrong part of, of Michoacan. So, uh, um, yeah, common sense. Don't, don't go into places that people tell you not to go into. You mentioned that when you were starting to ride and you went from your F800 to the 1200 that you joined up with a motorcycle club there or went out riding with them. Are there a lot of clubs uh, in Mexico? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a club. It was just, you know, it's like an informal group of people uh, and they kind of intermingle with other groups. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of clubs. Uh, you've got a lot of BMW, a lot of Harley clubs. Uh, KTM is starting to get a little bit more of a following. Um, there's actually a fairly big community and a lot of clubs in Mexico. And, uh, you know, on one side, we have kind of this, uh, I wouldn't say lawlessness, but um, that can be a downside. But also, you have also like more flexible law enforcement, if you will. So you, you, you can play a little bit more on the road, and that's a good sign. Like the, the, the rules aren't as strict, so um, you can push a little bit more uh, when you're riding uh, in the sticks and things like that. I, I, I don't know, like as a Mexican, um, we enjoy that. You, we we kind of, we say, you know, when you ride in the States, you have to really just stick to uh, the rules very strictly, you know? Um, so riding in these conditions can be a lot of fun. I mean, you're not doing crazy stuff, but you just ride a little bit faster. Um, so these clubs everywhere, uh, so, uh, I don't know, just have fun. They go out on, on the weekends, um, really good people. Uh, there's events all the time happening everywhere. So this is my point. If, you, if you're a foreigner and want to come to ride in Mexico, I would get in touch with the hundreds or at least tens of dozens of clubs are everywhere in, are everywhere in Mexico. We've talked about that on, on this show before, about uh, connecting with local clubs and, and connecting with local people. One of the great things about it, or, or one of the many great things about it, is that you find out places that you probably would have missed otherwise through the locals that ride there. Uh, it's, a, a, I guess, a real door into that, the local um, network and also the, the local community that you'd otherwise probably miss. Of course, I think, you know, sometimes it's like asking for directions. Sometimes you don't want to do it. You think, oh, yeah, I'll just find my way. Uh, but in my experience, when you uh, let other people's uh, insights and, and uh, thoughts and experiences come into play, uh, the motorcycling, your motorcycle, your ride can become such a much richer experience. 
So in 2015, Harley-Davidson had a uh, Discover More campaign that they did. And, and basically what they were doing is taking applicants uh, to win... Um, well, I, I think I'm going to get you to tell it because you can probably tell it better. But uh, but from what I understand, there was more than 10,000 applicants. And um, what it was is it was an all-expense paid European trip on a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. And the winner got to keep the motorcycle. And the incredible thing is you were that winner. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, um, Harley wanted to, uh, yeah, demonstrate to the public that uh, a bike a more a Harley Davidson bike could do a continental trip. You know, there's there's this still this lingering idea from the seventies, from the eighties that the bikes weren't as reliable as you would want them to be. And they put a lot of effort into upgrading their stuff. So the campaign was about, you know, let's let's just put a Harley on uh, and throw it into the European continent and, you know, let it show that it can do the twisty roads, it can do anything. You throw at it. So more than ten thousand people applied. Uh uh, I went through the works, you know, different processes. I submitted a video, then they asked for a second video, Skype interviews, written essays. And from the 10,000 people, we came down to 100. And then it came down to five. And then I, they finally chose me. And it's pretty much the perfect job. Cause, you know, you got paid to tour on a bike for three months, all expenses paid. You get to keep the bike. And they also paid me uh, some, you know, cash money. Um, just basically to do what I love. So I, I was the luckiest person. I think, you know, even if I had won the lottery, I, I don't think I, I would be as lucky as I was because uh, just, you know, three months, to, I, I don't think I, I will ever experience something like that in my life again. I, I feel very blessed to be that person. So yeah, three, uh, uh, Harley Davidson chose me as their ambassador for Discover More. It's incredible. I mean, when you started to fill out your first application for it, did you did you even think in your mind that you would be the the final um, the final winner, or did you actually think that? No, I didn't. No, I mean, uh, I, I was very enthusiastic when we started. And, you know, my wife uh, told me just go for it, do it. Uh, uh, she helped me out with the whole process. You know, she's the uh, she's the smart one uh, in our relationship, <laughs> so she really. Um, you know, kind of gave me tips. She's a marketeer about uh, how to craft the message uh, that we thought Harley would like. Uh, but there were really good applicants on the contest. You know, as soon as we started seeing some of the other people, we're like, oh, sure. I mean, yeah, we tried. But um, but I guess Harley was looking for a more authentic, uh, I don't know, a more authentic take on things. Because some of the applicants were more way like super polished, and one of them was an actor, um, you know, uh, or professional writers, or like it, it was just. I think what finally pushed me through was a um, huge amount of luck and the fact that I was just a regular guy, and they just wanted that, you know. So, no, I never, I never thought I would be the winner. So when they finally told me, I, I you know, I, I still don't believe it. It's almost been six months since since I came back and I still don't believe it. It was unbelievable. Like, just incredible. And you <laughs> still have the Harley Davidson. They gave that to you to keep. Yes, they gave, um, the, the only thing is, um, the bike that I took on the tour, you know, it's a European bike. So it had different specifications or like, like emissions. Um, so I couldn't bring that bike back because we moved to Boston. Now I'm living in Boston. 
so they gave me an American bike uh, in New Hampshire, and I got to keep that one. Even better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's the best thing, you know. Um, uh, a brand new Street Glide 2016 denim black, perfect, beautiful. It's interesting because Harley Davidsons have been ridden around the world already. There's people like Dave Barr that rode his motorcycle around the world, and and others, you know, they have been used as adventure bikes, so to speak. And, and really, in, in our description for the, for this show, an adventure bike can be any bike at all. It doesn't matter. It could be a scooter, and it's an adventure bike. It's all what you do with it. What do you find the difference is between that Harley Davidson and your R1200? Um, I, I think like probably the most important thing is the mythology behind the bikes. You know, uh, when you're riding uh, a GS, it's pretty much you on the bike, and people will come and add to, uh, ask you about your adventure. But it's more like an individual thing. You know, um, people aren't as interested. But when you roll in a Harley, people are really like, especially in Europe, because I, I don't think it's such a common bike in Europe, people were really, really interested. You know, oh my God, Harley. Um, I, I, I think it speaks uh, uh, about just what people have in their heads as to what a Harley is, you know, um, the, the huge open roads in, in America, uh, just what, it's more than, than a machine in, in, in a way, you know, like the BMWs are, I don't know, I, I like them both equally, but the Harley certainly has uh, like a mystique around it. Um, and that was really important. On the technical side, you know, the Harley won't lean as, as, as hard as the BMW. Um, the brakes are uh, surprisingly good for a bike that, that heavy. Um, it has an entertaining system. Um, which makes it, you know, uh, different from what I'm used to on the BMW. On the BMW, I, I have my cardo and my helmet, and I listen to music on my helmet when I'm doing my thing. But uh, on the Harley, you can roll into town with the music, you know, blaring, and it's, I don't know, it's 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 very different. Um, I don't know, it's more comfortable. The Harley is way more comfortable, I think. But um, uh, I don't know. Um, the capabilities of, of, of the BMW are are different. You you can go onto uh, any dirt road. You can you know crash uh, into well not crash but just like go into a small stream and uh, do more like you would say like adventuring adventure biking. And the Harley truly is more a touring bike. Uh, although I had the greatest adventure of my life. Um, you know, I wouldn't take the Harley out, especially the street bike. I wouldn't take it on uh, uh, in, onto the Dempster Highway, for example. You know? Is that because of handling or because you're worried about uh, rocks and things like that chipping it up? So, yeah, the, the, the clearance of the Harley is kind of low. So I, I was afraid of, I, I would be afraid of the rocks, but also the handling. Um, I, you can't stand the pegs that easily, you know, and kind of balance your weight like you would do on... On a, on a GS, um, and also, at least on on, on my bike, I, everything's protected. You know, I put all the all the different things to protect the uh, the what what do you call it? I'm sorry, in, in Spanish, uh, the skid plates. Yeah, the skid plates or the you would yeah the the, the skid plates the the brake uh, plates uh, for the liquid and 
uh, all, all different kinds of like protection. So that really, if you drop the bike at a decent speed, that's okay. But if you drop the Harley, uh, like at first, it would kind of kill the aesthetics of it if you put everything around a Harley to protect, you know. Mm. And then it's just, I, I, I would hate to scratch the bike, you know. It's more, it's more of an aesthetic thing. Like if your GS is all muddy and and dented everywhere, you don't care. That's what it's for. I think, but but the Harley's more, for me, like a clean, um, I, I want to like not a scratch in it. Let's talk about the tour. Um, you, so you win the contest and then what does Harley Davidson do? Do they bring you to the Harley Davidson factory and then run you through some instructions or did you take a course and how did it work? Um, yeah, they took me to Oxford. Uh, that's where their headquarters are in great, uh, in the UK for the whole of Europe, Middle East and Africa, uh, so I, I met with, with the team. They kind of gave me all the equipment I was going to need. They gave me uh, helmets, boots, uh, shirts, like uh, bags. Kind of, we had an overview of the whole tour. And then I, I talked to the team that was going to be with me because the whole thing was documented uh, by a film crew. Uh, so, and they were like my family for the whole duration of the trip. Um, then I got to spend a few days in London. Uh, my wife came with me. You know, um, we kind of saw the sights and said goodbye. She saw me off at the Wars dealership in, in London. I, I, I got to ride the bike for the first time there. Uh, and yeah, we took off to Portsmouth, uh, ferry to Santander in Spain, and began. Um, and it, it, it really hasn't stopped. You know, it's still going on in my mind. It's incredible to think that you're now you're heading off on this European tour and you've got a group of people with you filming you the entire way on a new bike. That's got to be a lot of pressure to start off with. Yeah, um, but, you know, people everywhere make it, uh, you know, make it even better. Like, we were waiting for a ferry in Portsmouth and this guy rides up to me on an old Harley. And it's just a quick story, but he told me, like, hey, man, nice bike. And I'm like, yeah, it's brand new. And. Uh, how do you get it? Like, how much was it? I'm like, it was free. <laughs> so I tell him the story. He doesn't believe it. He finally says, man, you're the luckiest guy. And then he tells me his story about his bike. And I think it's an even better story. He, he got this bike uh, for cheap and he was trying to just restore it. So he, um, he gave it to a friend. You know, he had a shop. A friend had a shop and they were going to work on his bike. But he, you know, started calling this person every week to see how the bike was doing and he got no answer for weeks and weeks and months and, so, and then years. So after 15 years of trying to get a hold of his bike and this guy, he gets a call and he, the guy's like, hey man, I'm going to start working on your bike now. He's <laughs> uh, like, what, what is going on? I thought you stole it. It's like, no, you contract me to do this and then I, I went on a party in a bar and I got in a fight and then I accidentally killed a guy I was in a fight with. So I got sent to jail and I just came out of jail and I'm going to start working on your bike. <laughs> it's going to be my first job after getting out of jail. Uh, so he said he was an honest murderer. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a guy who sticks to his word regardless of the outcome. <laughs> you know, so I, I thought it was a really cool story. Uh, and all these little stories were being told to me all the time, uh, every city and every port. Uh, you know, I was in the streets of Barcelona, uh, just, you know, we're going some port, someplace, 
and a friend from college just walked, uh, he was walking down the street at the street light and he knew I was doing it. I said, hey, Luis. So he kind of just shook hands for a second while the stoplight went to green and we went off and I went off. You know, like, this guy's from Mexico City. So it just, things started happening that were really strange and, and fun and uh, uh, just fantastic things all the time. Um, yeah, I was, I was having the time of my life, except my wife wasn't with me, but everything else was incredible. What did you expect the trip to be like? And then what was it actually like? Um, I, I, you know, I thought it was it's just going to be uh, just, you know, play it by ear all the time. But uh, the tour certainly had uh, a structure to it that hardly needed to happen. You know, hardly needed to hit certain markets, and we needed to be at places and make have interviews with with different media. Um, so, so you saw it as a bit of a, a bit more romantic uh, vision of just you cruising the roads, and you sort of didn't really think about all the other stuff that was going to have to happen—the filming and the interviews and things. Yes, and I mean it was. Um, it was a misperception on my part because they certainly were very clear. This is the perfect job, but it's it's a job. You know, you're you, you're required to do all these things, and I was more like, yeah, I'm just gonna do what I want. So I finally, um, you know, kind of got into the flow of what needed to happen, uh, and I had a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I it was uh, a give and take on my part trying to push for the more, like you say, romantic side of things and hardly pushing for, yeah, well, yeah, but we need to, uh, we need to make sure that some things happen. And at the end, it, you know, like life, uh, it, it was a, a, a good mix of things. You know, I brought some stuff to the table and Harley brought some stuff to the table. And I think uh, that since they let me do that at some, uh, to a point, it became a very interesting thing for people to witness, you know, because um, he was a real adventure. Uh, but it, it, there were some underlying structural needs that, that were happening at the same time. So it was interesting for me, and I think it was interesting for them too, to, to see that develop through the three-month process. And three months is a long time. You certainly get into a routine there. It becomes your life, doesn't it? I mean, really, two weeks into it, three weeks into it, you've got to sort of be into the rhythm, and it becomes that's who you are, and that's how you're living. Yeah, it's weird, because every, every night, almost, uh, at least for five days, six days a week, I was sleeping in a different hotel, meeting different people. Uh, the only constant was the bike, uh, you know, transversing through people's lives, uh, one night we would be speaking Spanish. The next night we would uh, be listening to French. I, I speak a little bit of French, and then we would be, uh, you know, uh, hearing German and then uh, English. And it was, um, I don't know, it was very humbling also. Because I think motorcycling can do that to you very quickly. You, you kind of, uh, I don't know, you kind of break the barriers of the ego, if you will, or something like that, you know, like, you very quickly realize, of course you're not, but you experience the fact that you're not the center of anything. You know? You're just a little speck, and and uh, you're going through so different, so many different countries and nationalities. You, uh, this whole huge, uh, you know, world that's out there that you truly never have a chance to experience that much unless you're 
on a trip like this, uh, that's, it's very, um, I don't know, it's very enlightening in a way. I don't know if that's the correct word, but it's just, uh, it's a privilege to be able to be a witness to that richness and variety of the world. What were they going to do with the film? They promoted it everywhere uh, on, on their digital channels. I think more than like 20 million people got exposed to the blog and the videos and the pictures. We'll be right back with more from Louis in just a second. I'd like bomb-proof gear for my bike. I like to know the gear that I have on there that's going to withstand the the drops and the bumps and and all the rough stuff that I put my bike through because I'm not that easy on my bike and and I I don't want to find myself sitting on the side of you know some dirt road somewhere with my bag broken open. And if you want that too, I'll tell you you should be looking at Giant Loop. Giant Loop has incredibly tough bags. And and here's a quote from Cycle World magazine: "The best hardcore saddlebag and tank bag solution we've." Found is Giant Loop. There are cheaper solutions to carrying stuff, but these American-made pieces have been over mountains and across deserts with no issues. That's Cycle World Magazine. It says a lot. But you drop by their website, www.giantloopmoto.com. Click on Shop and find their Panniers link. And I think it's listed under Pannier Systems. Look at the Siskiyou Panniers. This is one beautiful set of bags for a motorcycle. So if you're looking for some soft bags for your bike, incredibly durable, uh, that's the Giant Loop uh, system. It's, it's just amazingly durable. They fasten on extremely well. That's what they're really well known for, durable luggage that holds on. People go out riding with lightweight bikes and they really beat them. They go really fast and these bags stay there. That's what they designed them for. When they're testing them, they, they're actually loading them up with weights like sandbags and things and just beating the things literally through riding their bikes. And um, they find the little pitfalls and they fix them and they modify them until they have an amazing bullet proof system. The Siskiyou Panner system looks incredible. So if you're looking for a pannier system for your bike, and, and they sort of mimic um, hard panniers in a way because they're, they're sort of squared off looking, but they've got all the advantages of the soft pannier. They're completely waterproof. Matter of fact, on the page, they've got this huge waterproof logo that screams that the thing is waterproof. Giant Loop is also um, the North American exclusive North American distributor for Rally Raid products. And that's so you can turn the Honda CB500 into an off-road bike, or not so much an off-road, I should say adventure bike. Amazing. But Honda apparently has one of these kits on a bike right now, Honda Canada, and they're displaying it at shows across Canada here. That says something about that system as well. Quality stuff rider driven this is a rider driven company they ride motorcycles they use their products they beat their products to make sure they're extremely tough when you're going to get something from giant loop or if you're talking to them make sure you always tell them you heard them here on adventure rider radio but you can put in the code arr at checkout and that'll get you free shipping in the united states so make sure you tell them you heard them here on adventure rider radio giantloopmoto.com and now back to Louis Castilla, who is having some technical problems on his end. So what's happening here is we're having trouble with your connection, and we've got you to switch over to your phone now. As you're, Where are you right now? Uh, right now I'm in Cancun. Um, you know, I came with my wife. Uh, for uh, She has a convention. Um, so we took a few days off because we moved to Boston, and as Mexicans, we're not used to the bad weather you know, the, the, the blizzards and stuff. <laughs> so we're kind of trying to escape that a little bit. Um, so, and she doesn't know Tulum, which is this fantastic 
uh, archaeological site, maybe like an hour down south from Cancun. So I'm going to take her there. Um, hopefully she'll love it. You can, you know, that you can swim in the ocean and look at the pyramids from the water. So it's fantastic. Nice. And of course, you are escaping a massive snowstorm. Didn't you, didn't you guys just get a huge snowstorm? Yeah, yeah. She barely flew out of it. Uh, she was on the tail of the storm. She was flying in. Um, <laughs> and now we'll, we'll see how things are when we get back. It was, <laughs> it was, I think New York had like the, the worst snowfall in years. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you guys all got hit hard, but you're not suffering right now. And, and now we switched over. You're on your cell phone. So let's see if we can find out the rest of the story. You were mentioning about the filming. Yeah, yeah. We had um, two directors, one assistant and one producer. Uh, so, yeah, it's a full-on crew. And uh, we would do takes over and over until we kind of got the right shots. We, I, I did the San Bernard's Pass maybe 10 times to get the right shots with the drones <laughs> and, and the camera, um, which is, I mean, in a way, it was really fun because I got to experience that, uh, the pass through the day. And that the same thing happened at the Atlantic Road in Norway, we pretty much stayed the whole day doing that small stretch of road, which is, you know, if you're just riding through, it might not be like, I guess, the best experience. Some people get put off by the experience of just, just eight kilometers. But since I got to do it like 10 times, I really just like the, the changing of the lights and experiencing the ups and downs of the curves. Um, it's not something that you would normally do on your motorbike and I got to enjoy it quite a bit. And then the results are fantastic. Like if, if you see these videos, um, they're for, even though, you know, part of me saying it, but they're some of the most, I guess, accomplished motorcycling videos I've ever seen. They're really, really good quality. So where do you go next, Louis? You've, you've got a Harley Davidson in the garage. You've got your BMW. You're clearly a, a dedicated rider. Has this changed you in some way? A lot of times when people do things like this, they, they sort of come out and realize that, you know, I want to spend my life doing that more than what I was doing before. Has, have you had some sort of change like that? Yeah, um, I, I certainly want to try and um, see if I can continue doing uh, motorcycling uh, on a more professional level. I hope I can. I just started out this website called Discovering Rides. And I'm trying to, you know, uh, talk a bit about uh, the, the products that I like, helmets and boots and, you know, the bikes and different uh, restaurants and places that I've been to that I like. And hopefully it will start a conversation with the people that follow me uh, just about uh, what they like to do on a motorbike. So, so if that becomes successful, I would be super honored and happy. And uh, I don't know if it will happen. Um, but I'm certainly having fun doing it as I do other things for a living. But, you know, like, you know, I told you in the beginning, motorcycling changed my life because it became a therapy to get over the loss of my parents. And now it's become an integral part of my life. I, I, I don't know what I would do now that I'm living in Boston. I'm certainly getting a chance to know what it would be like not to ride a bike every day with the weather and the snow, uh, sometimes it needs to stay parked. And, and uh, I don't like that idea so much, you know, it, I, I, and I miss it so much more because of that, you know. <laughs> 
What was it about the trip that, that sort of made you decide to, that you wanted to spend your life doing things that were more motorcycle orientated? Was it winning the contest that did it or was it part of the ride? Um, it's, I think it's the exposure to people, you know, um, I, I think the, uh, being on a motorcycle opens you up, uh, for interaction. Like people are interested naturally in what you're doing. Um, and it's, um, a, a less, I guess, a less pretentious, uh, way of life. You know, it's just you and a bike and you're traveling. There's not a lot of pressure. There's not a lot of expectations to be filled. Um, you can stop at any moment. You can camp. Yeah, you, uh, motorcycling has taught me that like, you don't need a lot, you know, to be happy. You, uh, just a t- full tank of gas, and you can eat anywhere. And uh, I don't know possessions. You just maybe two or three shirts and a pair of jeans and your boots. And uh, you know, as we go on and on into a more materialistic world, motorcycling is a refreshing. Uh, uh, change to that. Of course, you're buying a bike and you're buying all the things around it. But even if you buy just a small used bike, you can plug into this kind of nomadic frame of mind. And I think that's what really drives me, the, the connecting with that side of our psyche that was such an important part of the human history up until a few years back. You know, we, we, were, we were traveling from place to place looking for better farmland or for for better gaming and then we kind of settled into cities and the motorcycling world takes you back to just uh being a traveler and getting to know this world certainly is a privilege today you use the word pretentious and i have to ask you isn't there something pretentious about the harley davidson motorcycle to begin with i mean the, the the harley has a certain reputation for i guess to be ridden with a lot of ego compared to say for uh you know if you're riding a, a japanese bike let me just say that yeah and, and you know uh when i was chosen it was the first time i was really exposed to the harley brand like before I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to Harley. And I think I was kind of a, I guess, like an outsider to the brand. Um, so I, I didn't try to think a lot about that. I, I could, I can certainly see that, uh, you know, the Harley fans are very, I don't know how you would uh, say this, very um, set on their ways about what a Harley user is. But what I tried to do in my ride was just, you know, make sure that everyone knew that uh, it was really not about the Harley way of life. It was about motorcycling. And I was inviting everybody, you know, on a Vespa, on a, on a Can-Am, on a old uh, Piaggio, anything. Like, just come and ride with me because this is, for me at least, you know, it was not about just promoting a brand. It was about we're in Europe and we have a bike, let's have fun. Um, so even in the campaign, I, I, I try to keep it real, if you will. Yeah. Do you get the feeling that Harley-Davidson is trying to lean away from that, trying to change their, um, I guess, if I use the word stigma, it probably isn't quite correct, but that, um, that certain thought process that goes along with Harley-Davidson, are they trying to get away from that? Are they trying to, or maybe open it up? Yeah, I think they're trying to uh, open it up. Um, 
certainly with the new bikes, the smaller bikes, I think they're trying to catch a, a different market. And I, I see it as a good thing. You know, um, not everybody has twenty, thirty thousand dollars to spend on a motorcycle. Louis, thank you very much, and we'll have to keep in touch. Maybe we'll talk about Mexico next time. For sure, uh, Jim. It's it's been a pleasure, and I hope I'll be able to talk some more in the future with you. I've been speaking with Louis Castilla, and you can find out more about Louis and what he's doing now by visiting his website, www.discoverrides.com. You might want to drop by our website and check the show notes for this episode as well, because we've got a bunch of great photos there from Louis. Well worth dropping by and having a look at. Coming up, we have Brett Tax for our Rider Skills segment, who's got some tips to teach you how to get your adventure bike up and over those obstacles. Stay with us. You know, when I go to buy something for my motorcycle or motorcycle related, I want to deal with a company that understands it, that gets it. And, you know, and that means they have to be riders themselves. They've got to be enthusiastic. They've got to be into what I'm into, not just someone set up to sell some gear through an online store. And Aerostitch is one of those companies. You'll, you'll feel it if you've ever held an Aerostitch jacket or, or one of the bags they make. You can feel the quality in there. But you can also see it in their enthusiasm. You drop by their website and, and look at it. It's not just about selling the products. It's about motorcycling. You know, you can see their riders, the stuff that they post, the, the products that they have. It's very, very clear. And if you ever deal with them, you will find out very quickly they care. I mean, and the Ride More Guarantee is a good indication of that. I've, I've said it before on the show. They've got the Ride More Guarantee where they're saying that if you buy one of their one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter suits and you try it for a month and you're not riding more than when you received it, then you can send it back for a full refund. That says a lot because they're not just saying to you, you're going to enjoy the shiny feel and everything. What they're saying is you're going to ride more. It's going to change your life. How many products get out there and say that? You can tell they're motorcyclists behind the company. And if you look at what they're doing right now with their electric motorcycle, they've got to test in the wintertime. They're riding it through the winter. They're trying their gear. They're trying heated gear. They're trying all types of things. It takes a lot to ride through the winter. And let's face it, you've got to be a little devoted for that. And from what I understand, there's going to be a bunch of them in the company that are going to be trying the, the bike and riding it in the winter at different times. That is an indication as well rider driven. This is a company you want to deal with. And I've told you before on this show, we do not get behind companies that we don't believe in. We get behind companies that we believe in. And I have a a set of Aerostitch pannier bags and I've had them for years now. They are absolutely amazing. I mean, the quality is top notch. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And make sure you use that forward slash ARR. Um, As I've said before, it's very important that they understand that it comes from Adventure Rider Radio. They want to see that, um, that people that are listening to this show are interested in their products. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know. Just pop it in there. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now, before I finish up here with Aerostitch, I'm going to pick a a product for this week that I want you to check out. It's called their Darien Jacket. Most likely you're riding an adventure bike or something like that. Go to their website and check out their Darien Jacket. This is an adventure jacket made just for the sort of things we do. It's got the, the long length, the belt, you got to look at it, and, and there's a full write-up here on it. But um, I think you'd be surprised at the price. This thing is, is very reasonably priced for what you're getting. And I think when you're buying this, you're sort of buying a jacket for life. www.aerostitch.com forward slash A-R-R. And 
And now we have Brett Tax from Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, for our rider skills segment. And Brett has some tips for riding our adventure bike up and over obstacles. Welcome back to another episode of Rider Skills. And again, we have Brett Tax from Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. Now, Brett, last time we talked, we were talking about the weightless rider. Absolutely. This I'm so glad to be back, by the way. And I'm really, really excited about today's segment. The, uh, the weightless rider is one of those things that is just so critical and so key to all the other things that we're going to build on as we, we chat on future episodes about going over logs and rocks and up and down hills. And, and this is one of those things that has to be in place before any of that other stuff can happen. So I'm really excited to be talking about this today. Let's start right from the top. What is a weightless rider? How do we describe that? How do we define it? The, the weightless rider is the process of removing your your mass is the rider and your riding gear from the equation of the bike to make it more effective when we ride off-road and to reduce the possibility of not only falling down but also damage to the motorcycle. So it's kind of hard to believe that, you, that um, we can remove any weight. And uh, clearly we're not re- actually removing weight from the bike. But what we're doing is we're, we're using our legs. Really, it's, it's all about our legs, isn't it? It's, it's partially about our legs. It's really about isolating the weight. And to come back to, to how this works, we have to understand how the suspension on the bike works because we're part of that suspension. We're, we're separated from the bike and we have our own suspension. That's what the legs are. And if you think about these large adventure bikes that we ride off-road, and when I say large adventure bikes, we all think of a 1200 GS. But the truth is if we're on a, a 400 dual sport or even a 225 dual sport and it's loaded down with gear and equipment, it's a heavy bike. So, you know, just to keep that in in perspective, but when we're riding along, your suspension is supposed to isolate and hold that weight above the ground. And so when you hit a rock, all the weight on that bike is hitting that rock, that little spot. And that's how we get pinched flats and that's how we bend our rims. And so if you've got a 600 pound bike, you've got 600 pounds plus whatever velocity and force and everything else is coming into that impacting it. If you sit on the bike and you're a 200-pound guy you know, with gear or whatever that is, you've got now 800 pounds impacting on that rock. And the concept of the weightless rider allows us to suspend ourselves above the bike, essentially removing that weight from the equation. So instead of an 800-pound impact, and we're just talking dead weight, not velocity and all that, but instead of an 800-pound impact, you have a 600-pound impact. So there's no other way to do this other than standing. And this is why standing is so important. This is important why we stand. And the issue we have is that people think standing is the solution. And standing is not the solution unto itself if you don't understand the concept. And this is where the weightless rider concept really steps into play. If I stand up on the bike and I lock my feet and my knees in place, and when I hit that impact, if I'm locked solid on the bike... I'm still part of that weight equation. The only way it works as a weightless rider is when, as you alluded to, we allow our knees to absorb the bend. And if you've ever watched an ostrich running, you'll notice that the head kind of stays in one place and the body and the neck moves all over the place, but the head doesn't move at all. And that's the same thing we're working on. If I was to stand beside you as you rode over a, a series of whoops or large rocks 
and I can see the bike moving up and down and side to side, but your head looks just like that ostrich head going across. Your body and head are just nice and level as the bike moves up and down underneath you. That's the weightless rider concept because you're now suspended freely above it. As the bike impacts, you're allowing flex into your legs that allows the bike to move up without pushing your weight into the air. That also means that when the bike comes down on the other side of an obstacle, instead of you being locked on and it having to wait for 800 pounds to respond to come back to the earth, it's only 600 pounds, which means the bike responds much quicker. I can imagine all the people that are now searching YouTube for a video of an ostrich running. <laughs> but another way maybe to look at it, uh, to illustrate that is, uh, I see a lot of shots from where they take a, a video camera and they put it on the back of the bike and you can see the suspension going up and down. That's sort of the same thing, isn't it? It's absolutely. If you if you mount a camera on the lower portion of your bike when you're GoPro or, or, or your Cena or whatever camera you're using, and you put your front suspension in view of the camera and ride over any surface, especially an off-road surface, it's amazing how much movement our wheels have compared to the bike itself. And that's the separation that we want to make one step further up the line. The suspension allows the wheel to track the earth while the bike doesn't impact everything. And our knees, our legs, allow us to suspend above the bike, allowing the bike to move underneath us without us moving so much. So we're just one step removed. So how do we get into this position and how do we know it when we're there? Excellent question. So the way we get into this position is, uh, and we haven't talked about this sort of set uh, yet, and I'm sure at some point we'll probably end up with one of these as our conversation pieces, but we need to be able to move, stand on the bike without using our arms or hands. So when we stand up, we're using all legs. So we pivot up onto the bike and that way we're not affecting the, the steering on the bike. And when we stand up, we end up locking in with our knees. And this also comes in, and at the end of our last session, we talked about um, feet and knees. And we focused on that because it's really the lower part of our body that's most critical in this particular you know, concept. So once we stand up on the bike, we allow the knees to move slightly forward so our hips are just above where our ankles are in relation to any sort of forces coming at us. Um, and, and I say that because when we're going very slow, we may be directly above our, our feet, like when we're standing idle. And I, you can't watch other riders and just go, look, they're standing. I'm doing what they're doing. There's other things going on in place here. You have to make yourself neutral. So if I'm going very slow, my hips are above my ankles. And of course, those are locked in on the pegs. I usually recommend for people starting onto this to stand near the balls of their feet so that their ankles reside slightly behind the peg itself. And that allows one more pivot point. So now you have the ankles and the knees and the hip, all which allow flex. So you have three components of a body suspension going on here. Uh, the other thing that you'll that you have to keep in mind is as you go into things like hard acceleration, you now have an additional force you're trying to neutralize. So not only are we standing above the ground, but you have the force pushing against you. So we lean slightly forward on the bike until we find an area where there's no energy being used. We're not holding on with the hands. We're not trying to squeeze onto the with our knees to stay intact with the bike. We're just finding that neutral point. If we're coming doing hard braking or go down a hill 
then we end up shifting back on the bike. And it's not that we're shifting back to shift back. We're shifting back to find that neutral ground, to become weightless. So we're neutral to the gravity forces below us and to the braking forces that are being applied by either a downhill descent or by the hard braking. You mentioned standing on the balls of your feet, which takes a lot of energy, you know, a lot of physical strength to do that. Do you always stand on the balls of your feet or is this only in that position? There are there are two different foot positions in general that we talk about on a bike. One's on the balls of the foot and one is center foot. And you'll find as a rider, as you become more experienced, to shift from one to the other, depending on the situation you're in. When we start off with training new riders for off-road, whether it's dirt biking or whether it's adventure riding, or whether it's the military that are concerned about going out, we start with the balls of the feet. And there's a couple points behind this. Not only do we have the suspension advantage, but as we talked about in some episodes back about riding footwear, we also want to protect our feet. And the balls of the feet force you to keep your toes in tight to the bike. So you're less likely to get them caught on something or if you fall to, to twist and have a lower leg injury. If you have that proper footwear that we discussed, you have a much more solid platform. So that fatigue level uh, drops quite a bit. The other thing we'll find, and because you're talking about fatigue specifically, and many of the riders that get into adventure riders are on the uh, on the back end of the scale, you know, with uh, families on the way out the door or retirement or whatever. And so we may not be in the the our peak health of life. What you will find is if you're on the balls of your feet, you can actually drop your ankles. And that actually causes a natural locking position for your legs to come up against the bike, and it puts that pivot into place and actually reduces the amount of energy uh, that, that it takes to ride. I personally ride high on my the balls of my feet, but many riders drop the heels, and it's really a preference thing. It depends on the rider and the situation. And for stability and holding on, you're, you're pushing your legs in against the tank or whatever, whatever happens to be there at your knees. Yep. Uh, initially... When you first start doing this, you'll find yourself actually squeezing the bike. And we teach people to do that. Balls of the feet and they squeeze with the knees. I want them to feel the motorcycle. As you evolve as a rider, as your skills become uh, more developed, what you'll find is that you'll have less of a squeezing motion there, but you'll always feel the bike rubbing on your knees. And this doesn't matter if I'm braking, if I'm going over large rocks, if I'm doing very slow U-turns on a trail or, or maneuvering around trees and having the bike move underneath me with a counterweighting type technique, you'll always feel those knees touching. Any of your listeners that are skiers should understand this kind of a concept because as we turn and shift, your knees are always sort of connected, you know, and those are the same things that we have when we start doing these low speed maneuvers as well as high speed stuff. There's also similarities between horseback riding and this as well, because with horseback riding, you do the same sort of thing. You learn to, to use your leg and your legs and your sitting position and keep yourself held onto the horse with your legs, your thighs mainly, and keep your hands free to do things. And, and that's what we're doing. We're, we're making it so that our, our hands are, are not a solid uh, mount to the bike, right? And that's one of the the largest, uh, most common mistakes I see when people stand. As I alluded, during the, the training tours that we do where we, we help teach people these skills while they're out riding or the training camps where we bring them in and we focus on the skill set specifically in a, in a controlled environment, one of the very first things I do is just let them go out and ride and warm up and allows us to observe them with whatever skill sets they bring in uh, to the program. And locking in with the hands and holding on to the handlebars when they stand up. That's how they stand. That's how they sit. That's how they control the bike. 
that's the most common thing. And that's what we need to get away from. We need to make sure that we're using the lower half of our body to control. Just like you alluded to with horseback riding, you really control the horse more with the lower body than you do even at the the top. You sort of hint, you know, with the reins, just like we hint with the handlebars. Uh, Kayakers understand they control the boat with the lower body. They don't control it with the upper body. Skiers know. Snowboarders know. It's the lower body that controls what's going on. And and off-road riding and, in fact, street riding is exactly the same. Some people may find when they stand on their pegs and try and get into this position that they're actually leaning too far over to get the handlebars. And that's where we go back to this, this weightless rider concept. The idea is to find neutrality in your own weight. And that neutrality in the weight not only makes the bike free from your weight, but also reduces your energy output to do any kind of a control. Uh, again, those are one of those, those things we're working towards, especially with these large bikes, is how do I use less energy to ride this thing so I don't make mistakes, so I don't get hurt, so, so I don't get just tired and I can actually enjoy what's going on and taking pictures or going for hikes or setting up camp or whatever it is. And if you're always holding on tight with the hands or your shoulders, you're not you're not conserving energy. If you're squeezing really hard, you're not conserving energy. If you're getting beat up while you're riding over rough stuff and you feel like you've just been shaken, then you're not conserving energy. And this neutrality allows us to do that. So how important are handlebar risers when it comes to this concept? Is, is that just a thing to make it a little more comfortable? Or in some cases, would you say it's absolutely necessary? Uh, actually, more times than not, I say that people have a tendency to throw them on because they're accustomed to standing straight up and they see other people have them. Probably at least 50% of the people I see put risers on don't need them and often are better off without them. One of the things about risers is it does cause you to want to stand straight up and walk out. And when we stand, we're actually sort of pivoting forward. And that puts us up where, our again, our hips are above our ankles, so that's where the mass of the weight is. And if I move, I lower my upper body just slightly, so I get a little bend at the waist, I naturally put that hinge into, into action. That also allows me to put a little bend in my arms. And that's why they put on risers. They, they don't want to be bent over and have that bend, but that bend at the arms, and you'll hear guys talk about elbows up when riding, it's not really about the elbows. It's about the wrist and forearm relationship. You want those to be nice and straight. You don't want any bend there. And the elbows come up because if you keep your, if you move forward on the bike, your upper body, and you move your elbows up, you'll find that your wrist forearm ends up in that straight relationship. And that allows the bike to move laterally left and right as if it was tipping over and allowing your body to remain directly above the bike in that neutral position or that weightless position. That also means that if you have impacts where the bike moves into you, you get a natural bend and the elbows bend out and they still allow you to control or track with the handlebars as they go left and right. Uh, street riders have tendency to have their elbows in at their their body. So they're kind of at their side and then they bend forward to the handlebars instead of going out and then bending and coming into the handlebars, keeping that wrist and, and forearm straight. The other thing about this this whole concept about being weightless is again remembering that as soon as you reduce that energy level, if you as soon as you reduce that weight, the things that you're really benefiting from, if you think about it, is you can see farther ahead. 
as soon as you're standing up, you can see farther out. You can see the rocks, you can see the obstacles, you can see all the things that are going to come up to you. So you're not responding to them, you're planning for them. So that's a real advantage here. When you're standing, you can react faster to what the bike does. If it shifts left or right, forward or back, if it drops into a hole, you're already in a position to allow your legs to extend or allow your legs to collapse. Because it doesn't take any energy to let your legs collapse when you come into a bump. And if it drops into a hole, it takes no energy to let your legs extend. So theoretically, you're only using energy when the bike isn't actually going up or down. The other things you have here is you have more movement. So we talk about the way the body weight affects traction. The more you can move over the front tire, the more you can move over the back tire, you can shift where you want the traction on the bike. When I'm standing, I can shift the weight farther forward and farther back than if I'm sitting. So that's a tremendous advantage once you get up off the bike like this. The other things to keep in mind are the safety factors. When I'm standing, if I happen to catch something and I actually go off the bike or I have what I like to refer to as a rapid dismount, because I'm already in the air, I'm much less likely to run into the shield, catch my neck or cause damage because I'm elevated. So I'm more likely to go over a shield instead of into a shield, especially guys that ride with tall adventure shields or touring shields. The other thing is just catching the the chest, you know, hitting the handlebars. If I'm up in the air, I'm less likely to catch the the chest onto the handlebars or something hard. So my my likelihood of sustaining injury from those is decreased. So standing is a very critical thing to do or to learn to do properly. It's also what you're going to need to know before you start going over logs and large obstacles. If you're not comfortable, if your default position is to drop to your seat because it's muddy or sandy or because there's something scary coming up, you're losing every actual advantage you have because you're nervous about it. People need to get into this where they're more comfortable standing than sitting. And and that's one of the greatest things I hear when we're done at the end of one of our tours and guys sit down to do a road portion into the hotel, they get off the bike and they're like, okay, that felt really weird. I felt really odd to sit down on the bike. And that's what we want. We want people to be in the place where standing is what's natural. That's their default. As soon as something scary happens, instead of thinking about it, they're just automatically up and on their feet and up and off the seat. I find when I sit down, the bike actually feels too small to me. It feels kind of goofy as you're sitting there. And that's a good thing. That's the place we should be at as riders. And if they're not, not only do they need to practice getting up off the seat where they're comfortable, but again, I always encourage training or watch somebody that really knows what they're doing. Watch the motocross racers. Watch these guys and notice how much those bikes actually move underneath the riders. Even when they're sitting, those bikes still shift left and right. And that's what we need to emulate. So how can we go out there and practice this on our own? Where I would start off as a sending somebody out without a professional with them is find some place that has maybe some rolling hills or or if there's a, a a track or someplace that has some whoop sections and ride through those sections, stand up on the peg and try to keep your head at exactly the same elevation at all times. So as you ride across, let the bike roll up into you and then fall down away from you. The other thing this allows you to do because it's kind of a spread out sort of a rolling up and down is that you can you can prepare for what's coming up. So you can put your legs in a position so that when you hit the hill, when the bike comes up into you, that you can focus on letting your legs bend, 
letting your hips bend so the bike comes up and your head stays level. And as it rolls off the other side, relaxing your legs and letting the bike fall back away from you. Again, theoretically, the only energy you have is when the bike's not in motion because it takes no energy to relax the legs and let the bike move into you or to relax your legs and let it fall away from you. And that would be a great place for somebody that hasn't played around with this to, to go out and kind of try to experience it. Brett, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next episode. Thanks again for having me on. Um, I can't wait to get into this next topic. I've been speaking with Brett Tax from PSSOR, or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And you can find out more about Brett, and I encourage you to find out more about Brett in the courses that he offers, because he's got some great courses there, um, not only day courses, but um, the multi-day courses that he's been mentioning throughout this. Um, have a look at it. Drop by his website, www.pssor.com. And of course, that'll be in our show notes for this episode. I have an announcement uh, about our Adventure Rider radio stickers. We've been selling them for a little while now, and people have been grabbing them and sticking them on their bikes. We're no longer selling them. We've decided to stop selling them. We're going to start giving them away, giving them away with donations. Anybody who donates ends up getting a sticker from us. Now, here's the thing. When we designed this show originally, we designed it around the model of having advertising sales and donations fund the show. And that's the, the way it works for us. So we need your donations. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear more and you want to help keep the show going, donate to us. Drop by the website, click on the donate button, and our way of saying thank you what we're going to do is we're going to send you out a sticker for your motorcycle. So drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the donation button. Send us what you can and help out the show because we need your donation and we'll show our appreciation by sending you back a sticker. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who is always working on the show tirelessly. I also want to thank our advertisers, Max BMW, Best Rest Products, Aerostitch, and Giant Loop. And remember, if you'd like to get a sticker, an Adventure Rider Radio sticker, and they look really cool, yeah, I'm biased, but they do. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the donate button. Any amount you donate is going to get you a sticker. Just choose your amount, donate, help support the show, and feel good about it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. Hola, ¿qué tal? Mi nombre es Luis Castilla de discoveringrides.com y están escuchando Adventure Rider Radio.